Bible, if you will, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and as you know, we're going through the life of David in the Old Testament. And this morning, uh, we're going to examine a, an episode in David's life where David really wanted to do something great for God. I mean, David, God had done a lot for David. He, he was now king, and he had brought him from a shepherd to a king. And, and David's sitting there, and he's thinking about how things are, and he thinks, boy, I'd really like to do something great for God. And David has this wonderful dream that he has, not a, a, a literal dream, but just, just something he wants to do in his mind. And God tells him, no, you can't do that. Have you ever had something you really wanted to do? Or maybe something you really wanted in life, and it wasn't anything sinful, it wasn't anything bad. As a matter of fact, it was something very good and very godly and very positive. And, and you really wanted that, and yet it seems that God has said, No, that is not going to happen. You are not going to be able to do that. What do we do when God tells us no? Now again, we know that God has said no to things that are sinful, to things that are ungodly, to things that will harm us and harm others in our spirit or even in our body. But what about when it's something good? It's something that you assume God wants you to do. But yet God says, no, I'm not going to let this happen. You know, there, there's many examples. Someone of our loved ones is sick. And that person is a godly person. I remember as a, as a young person, the first time I really experienced this in a, in, in, in a, in a very a dramatic way was as a, a young person, an early teenager, growing up in our church. There was a very godly woman in our church. Her name was Miss Anna Faye Vickers. Miss Anna Faye Vickers. And she sang in a, in a quartet uh, in church. And uh, she was one of those people who when they sang... Uh, her face just lit up. I can still see her today. Uh, when she would sing those songs, I mean, she didn't get up there and sing like, you know, she was in great pain and would hope it would soon be over. I mean, she got up there and her face beamed. She sang. She had a big smile on her face. And, and she was just a very loving. She was my Sunday school teacher. And I just thought she was just a great woman. Well, she got breast cancer. And all the church got together and prayed for Miss Anna Faye. And it lasted for several years, I think four or five years, as she went through treatment. And, of course, she steadily got sicker and sicker until finally, I think it was 1980, I was, um, it was 82, I'm sorry, 1982, when she passed away. I'd already graduated from high school. But, but I thought about, you know, why didn't God heal Miss Anafe? She was a wonderful woman, a Christian woman, a witness to many people. She was a blessing to people. Why did God not heal Miss Anafe? Well, I mean, that's a good theological question. Maybe a lot of people have a lot of different answers. Some would say, well, uh, y'all didn't have enough faith. The people who were praying for her didn't have enough faith. And, and that's why he didn't heal her. Or some people might say, well, maybe there was some sin in her life and and if she would have repented from that, then God would have healed her. And, and uh, you know, the bottom line is, I don't know why God didn't heal her, but He did not heal her. And there are things in our life like that, that episode that happened to me as a teenager that first opened my eyes, that, you know, sometimes God says no. 
Sometimes what we think should happen, what we think ought to happen, what we would do if we were God, God doesn't do that. He doesn't answer our prayers like we want them to be answered. What happens when God says no? And that's what we're going to find today. David had a wonderful dream that he wanted to accomplish for God. And and you probably already know that dream if you're familiar with the story of David. But we're going to find out that David said, I want to build a big temple for God. Remember, up until this time, from the time they had come out of the land of Egypt, uh, they worshipped God in what was called a tabernacle. And really all a tabernacle was was just a fancy tent. It was just a big tent that they had erected, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was that we talked a little bit about last week. That's where they came and they worshipped God. There was no permanent structure. And David is sitting there in his palace and he says, I live in a house of cedar which was a very expensive home in that day. I live in a beautiful home. I live in a beautiful palace. But yet, God's ark, the symbol of His presence with us, sits in a place with curtains, a tent. And He says, I want to build God a house. I want to build a great temple to the glory of God. And and He thinks that God will certainly be in favor of that. That's something to bring honor to God. But we're going to find out that God said no. We'll go to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse number 1. It says, It came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, let me just say, I just, just already kind of introduced what David just said there, but we're introduced to a new, a new personality in this 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember Samuel? He was the great prophet of old that had anointed Saul and had tried to lead Saul in the right way, but Saul kept going astray, and he loved Saul. He mourned for Saul when Saul was finally removed. Samuel was the one who first anointed David king, and And he helped shepherd David along. But remember, Samuel is dead. Samuel has died. And now there is a new prophet, first mentioned here in the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel, that we're introduced that's going to be very influential in the life of David, and his name is Nathan. And we have to say, you know, first impressions are real important, we hear. You know, when you go in for an interview or you meet somebody for the first time. I'll never remember the first time Loy met my parents. Uh... It was not planned. It was, let's see, early, it was January of 1983, and I had, we weren't really dating. We had a class together at South Georgia that fall quarter of 82, and uh, I had made up my mind over the winter Christmas break that I'm going to ask that girl on a date. And uh, so uh, the first date, date we went on was, do anybody remember a new song? The, the group New Song. Well, this was a long time ago. New Song had, has become very popular and in the, in the, in the uh, contemporary. Uh, but back then, they, they were kind of a, kind of a young person's gospel quartet. It, it, you know, the, the, they kind of sang traditional uh, gospel music, but with a little bit of a flair to it. And they were having a concert at Stokesville Baptist Church in Atkinson County. And uh, I thought, I will ask Lloyd to go to that. So I asked Lloyd, you, you want to go to this concert? She said, yeah, sure. And uh, I don't have time to tell the whole story, but I was late 
and, and I could tell she was mad. You know when you don't know somebody well enough to show you're mad, but you are mad? You know, and she, we didn't know each other. She wasn't going to have a fit. You know, she didn't know me that well yet. But I could tell I had got there about 45 minutes late. And, uh, but I had to work late. I was a working man. You know, my boss wouldn't let me off. And uh, I had a good reason. But anyway, got there and then I, she finally realized I wasn't trying to stand her up. I really had a good excuse for being late. So off we went to the, to the uh, concert. And after the concert was over, that, that church is only about six miles from where I lived at, with my parents at the time. And I said, hey, we might just run by uh, my house and, and you can meet. She said, okay. So it's about 9 o'clock, 8.30 at night. I don't know what time it was. Eight, maybe 9 o'clock. And I walk in and I knock on the door. And, you know, really, Mama and them never locked their door at that time. So I just walk right in. And uh, Daddy is on the couch with no shirt. But he does have on a pair of overalls on, but I think he's let, he's let the, uh, you know, the things down because he's laying. And so he says, I said, hey, I got somebody for y'all to meet. And he starts trying to put his clothes on, you know, as I walk in the door. So the first time she meets Daddy, who's a, if you've met Daddy, of course, he's a pretty big man. And uh, Lois says, that, that man nearly scared me to death. There, a big old hairy chest, and he had on a pair of overalls, and, and uh, he's coming up out of that. And, you know, she says, I thought, my word, what am I getting into? <laughs> what am I getting into? But uh, first impressions can have a big impact. Well, we don't get a good first impression of old Nathan the prophet. You know, Nathan is a great prophet of God. But, you know, the first thing that happens here. He, he assumes that this is going to be a good thing. David wants to build a temple. And David says, hey, I want to build a temple for God. And, and Nathan doesn't pray about it. He doesn't seek God's will about it. He just says, hey, that's a good idea. That would be a great thing to build a temple. And Nathan just, just spouts out real quick, well, go right ahead, king. Go, up, go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. That's a good lesson for us preachers. You know, we need to be uh, not so quick to tell somebody, sounds like a great idea, the Lord is with you. Because that it was not true. That was not true. So Nathan uh, goes to bed that night, and the Bible says in verse 4, but it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So David has this good, generous, godly dream. He mentions it to the prophet. The prophet just speaks off the top of his head. He thinks, well, that's a great idea. But then that night, God speaks to the prophet and says, listen, I've not asked anybody to build me a temple. This is not what I want David to do. I don't want David to build me a temple. And so David receives a firm no from God about building a temple. David wanted to build a temple. Why, why wouldn't God let David build a temple? Well, if we go over into 2 Chronicles, remember over in First and 2 Chronicles, uh, we get a little more detail about some of the stuff in First and 2 Samuel. As a matter of fact, 
First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and First and Second Chronicles are kind of like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You kind of have the same stories in all three books that that, that kind of overlay one another, and you get some more detail in some parts than you do in others. And we find over later in the historical records of the king of Israel that God gives a reason why He didn't want David to build him a house. He said that David had been a man of war. And David was. The first time David comes to prominence, what is he known for? He killed Goliath, right? That, that, that's the first thing that, that, that brings David uh, to prominence is he goes out and he kills this giant Goliath. And all through David's life, he's killing people over and over again. I mean, he's a man of war. And God says, you know, David, you've been a man of war, and that's okay. That's what you were called to do. But I don't want a man of war to build my house. He said, I'm going to have your son, Solomon, He is going to build my house. And so God gave a reason. He didn't tell David that reason now. All David knows is I want to do something for God, and I think it's a great thing. It's going to cost me a lot of money. It's going to be something I'm going to have to pour my heart and energy into. And God comes back and says, no, I do not want God to do this. But not only does David get a firm denial, David has a fascinating denial because I want you to notice what happens as God begins to speak to David in verse number 6. He continues speaking to Nathan. He says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. The first thing that Dave, that God does, He rehearses His past provisions to David. He says, David, remember where I brought you from. Now all this is in God's answer, no, to David. Because the key point that I want us to see in this no is that sometimes God's no's to the child of God are better than a yes. Because God says, David, I know it's your idea to build me a house, but I don't want you to build me a house. You're not going to do that. But David, let me tell you what I do want you to do. Remember how, first of all, you were, and I love how the Lord, He doesn't say you were shepherding the sheep. He said you were following the sheep. You know, a shepherd generally leads the sheep. But it's a, it's a picture of the low state that David came from. You know, God says, you, you, you were following the sheep around, David. You were out in the wilderness. You were a nobody. And I brought you from following the sheep to being the leader of my people. And I brought you, David. I did that for you. I brought you from that lowly estate. This was my plan for you. I want you to know that David would have been happy, I believe, shepherding sheep the rest of his life. He was a musician. He, you know, conducted uh, these songs and he wrote the Psalms many times when he was out out shepherding those sheep. I think he was an outdoorsman. He loved that. But God had a different plan for him. And God says, I brought you from that place. And not only that, he begins to give him some future promises. In verse number 10, he says, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them and they will dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that He will make you a house. 
Now notice David wanted to make God a house. He wanted to build a structure for the ark to dwell in. And God is telling David in his no, no, you're not going to get to do that, David. But I tell you what, David, I'm going to build you a house, David. I'm going to build you a house, but he's obviously not talking about a metal or a, a, a wooden or a stone structure. He says, when your days are fulfilled, in verse 12, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of man. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, in that covenant, and by the way, let's just just stop for a moment. This is called a covenant. Now, later in the passage, it doesn't mention the covenant, but God is making a covenant as a promise. Now, there are different types of covenant in the Bible. There are covenants in the Bible where God says, if you do this, I will do this. You know, there's in the Bible it says, God says, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Here's the law. If you follow the law, you'll have life and you'll have blessing. If you disobey the law, you will have cursing and you will have death. That's one type of covenant where God says, if you do this, I'll do this. It, it, it's up to you. But there's another type of covenant in the Bible, and this is an example of one of those types of covenants where God basically says, here's what I'm going to do. And he basically lays no condition upon it. He doesn't say, if you do this, I'll do this. God says, this is what I'm going to do, period. Notice how he mentions to David's descendants that he will not withdraw his spirit, that if they disobey him, he will, if they disobey him, he will chasten them, he will correct them, he will punish them, but he will not remove his spirit as he did Saul. In other words, he's not going to abandon. David's house. David, your house is going to be established forever. I'm not going to abandon your house. It doesn't matter what they do. I'm going to always be there. That's called an unconditional covenant. And in the Bible, there are at least five times Bible scholars tell us that God made an unconditional covenant. The first one is the covenant with Noah, where God says, I'm putting a rainbow in the cloud and I'll never destroy the earth by water again. That's an unconditional covenant. You know, God put a rainbow in the cloud, and that's His symbol of His covenant. The second was the Abrahamic covenant, where God told Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and by your seed shall all the earth be blessed. Didn't matter what Abraham did, that was God's unconditional covenant. God says, I'm going to do this. This is what's going to happen. And then the Levitical covenant, the priestly covenant, when God told Aaron that you will be a priest forever, forever, your descendants will be a priest forever to me. And then the Davidic, what they call the Davidic covenant, this covenant with David, where God told David, I'm going to set up your house forever, your, your throne and your kingdom. And lastly, the New Testament, where Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood 
which is shed for you, and in my body, which is broken for you. God's new covenant will forever, that's the covenant that we live under as Christians in this age of grace is God's new covenant where God has promised salvation to those who come to Him through Jesus Christ. So that is the promise, the covenant that God made with David. Now I want to show you something. Do you notice there in verse number 16, remember in the Old Testament, often there are these prophecies that are made have a dual, they have a dual fulfillment. Obviously, God is talking about David's physical descendants who would come after him and rule over Israel. He's talking about Solomon. He's talking about those others who would come after him. But he's also talking about something else because Jesus is called who? The son of David. As a matter of fact, if you go over to Luke, Luke chapter 1 and verse number 32, when the angel is speaking uh, to Mary about who her son is going to be, she is going to conceive and she's going to bear a child even though she is a virgin and she doesn't understand this. And the angel is explaining who this child is going to be. And in Luke chapter 1 verse 32, he says, He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. Now, what did the Lord say about David's descendants in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7? He said, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Here's Jesus, who is known as the son of David. The Lord says, he will be the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. If you'll notice in verse number 16 of 2 Samuel 7, there's three words. The Lord says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever, and your throne shall be established forever. Three things that would be established forever. David's house, David's kingdom, and David's throne. And what does Luke chapter 1 verse 32 say? Those are those three words that are given. It says, The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So those three words, the throne and the house and the kingdom that God promised David. Remember, all of this is in a no. All of this that is happening is in a no where God is telling David no to something David wanted to do. Sometimes, I would say all the time, God's no's are better than the world's yeses. I'd rather have a no from God than a yes from the world. Because inside God's no to David, that you're not going to do what you thought you wanted to do for me, God says, I've got something that is better and more permanent than a structure. David, it is through you that not only am I going to bring future kings to bless the earthly house of Israel, but I'm going to bring a spiritual king. I'm going to bring a spiritual descendant. His name is Jesus, the son of David, the rightful king of Israel. I'm going to bring him, and he's going to take up the mantle. And not only is he going to rule over Israel, but he's going to rule over the earth. You turn over to Revelation. And I don't remember the chapter and verse... Uh, this morning, didn't plan on sharing it, but if you remember, I, I love that passage where the angel puts his foot, you know, on the land, on the sea, and, and he blows the trumpet, and he makes a declaration. And he says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
There is coming a day when, yes, Jesus rules in a spiritual sense. Now He rules in the hearts of those who follow Him. And He rules in His church. But there is coming, and this is the blessed hope that every Christian looks forward to, there is coming a time when Jesus is going to physically return. Remember that. We believe in the physical return of Jesus. Not a spiritual return, but that one day... He will split the eastern sky. He will come and every eye will see. And He will rule and He will reign. He will set up a literal kingdom on this earth. And He will rule and He will reign in righteousness. I present to you, my friend, if that is not going to happen, we are in a mess. Because you look around you and this world is in a mess. I don't know if it's just that I'm getting older. or I'm, Well, I am getting older. I do know that. But I don't know if that's the sole reason. But I go some places and I look around and... And I say, my word, we are in a mess. Look at what is happening in our world. Look at, at, at people and look at how people act and what people do. And listen, you know, I, I, I say that as if I'm the first person that ever thought that. You know, people have thought that since the world began. They look around and they think, my goodness, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. What is, what is happening around us? And that is what the Lord, that is why the second coming of Jesus is called the blessed hope. Where the Lord says, don't despair. Yes, it seems that wickedness is prevailing and unrighteousness and hatred and all these things are prevailing. But Jesus is victor. He is victor. You know, uh, the, the Romans used to have a saying when they would conquer. They would say, Roma victor. Meaning Rome is victorious. And you know, that's kind of where we get the idea of victory in Jesus. It's Jesus, victor. Jesus is victorious. He will be victorious over all the kingdoms of this earth. And that is in God's no to David was a wonderful, affirming yes. You know, when the Bible says that His answers are yes and amen, that doesn't mean they're yes to what you want and I want. But it means they're yes to what God knows is best which sometimes is in opposition to what we think is best and what we want and what we desperately desire. And my friend, that is why it is necessary. The Bible says that you cannot please God. You cannot even come to Him without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because how do you reconcile something that you desperately want? And God says, no, you can't have that. That's not going to happen. How do you reconcile that with God being a loving God? I go back to the story I told about the precious lady, Miss Anafe. You know, how do I remember her, you know, weaker and weaker and dying? And, and we all have stories to tell. That was just the first. I have many others since then. Some much more deeper. But the first, to, to think about that. God, how, how could you let that happen? How could you let that happen? Do you know the only way to reconcile those two things? It's one word, faith. Faith. Faith simply means that regardless of what happens, I am trusting God. I am trusting Him. Have you ever tried to explain something to a child, you know, taking their medicine? You ever tried to, you know, you've got to take this medicine. You, you know, you're wasting your time at some point trying to convince them and get them to understand this is a good idea. That's never going to happen. Because they're basing their idea, their decision about good idea on taste and immediate sensation. 
And, and they taste it, that immediate sensation, bad, spit it out, no good. They have no concept of this will make your stomach ache go away. This will kill that germ inside your body. This will do all these good things for you, although in the immediate it will be unpleasant. It perhaps will be painful. It will not be pleasant, but it will accomplish a pleasant purpose in the end. And, and we're kind of like that. You, you know, you, you can't ever explain to that child and get him to understand and have that aha moment. Oh, this is good. Thank you. I'll take it now. You, you just have to somehow get it down. You know, even with a spoonful of sugar. You know, somehow you've got to get it down. You've got to get it down because you know he's got to have it. Scream, holler, whatever. He's got to have it. And, and that's us. That, that's us with God. We are operating on a level where we only think about how we feel in this life. I don't like this. I want this in this life. This is what I want out of my life. But Lord, you're saying no and you're, you're bad. You're a bad father. You're a bad God because you won't let me have what I want in this life. And I don't see why I can't have it. You're bad. The only way to still say, God, you're good even though you've told me no is to say, I do not base that decision on what I see and what I can comprehend in this life, but I base it on something beyond this life. That's faith. That's faith. And, and, and that is how we get through trials and tribulations. That is how we get through when God says no. Or, or we go through a time of crisis. It's faith. It is not walking by sight. Sight simply means what we can understand and what we can comprehend and what we can experience and, and, and feel. We don't walk by our senses, but we walk by our faith. Our faith in God will take us through any difficult time. And so God is teaching David that lesson. He's saying, no, David, you can't have what you say you want, and I know you really want that. I know your motives are pure, and you really want to build me a house to honor my name, but you can't do that. But I'm going to do something better for you. I'm going to give you a house that not only is going to lead the people of Israel in this life, but Jesus, who is going to be after your descendants. He's going to come, and He's going to be the Savior of the world. I read this story some years ago. Uh, it was actually originally from the Lutheran hour from, from decades ago, a long, long time ago, and I saved it. I found it. And uh, I, I love this story, and I'm just going to, going to read it to you. It says, In Scotland, a family by the name of Clark had a dream. Husband and wife and their nine children wanted to immigrate to the United States. To make that dream a reality, they struggled, they scrimped, they saved. Finally, they managed to accumulate enough money and obtain all the paperwork they needed to take the trip and begin a new life in a new land. Ship reservations were made and the family was ecstatic. Then, as often happens, tragedy struck. Seven days before they were to leave, the youngest of the children, a little boy, was bitten by a dog. The bite wasn't serious. The doctor stitched the lad up in no time at all. But the tragedy was that the doctor also had to hang a yellow sign on the Clark's front door. The yellow sign warned everybody to stay away. There was a possibility, a very small chance, that the boy had contracted rabies from the bite of the unknown dog. Their ship was to sail in one week. The family was quarantined for two. They would have to stay behind as their ship and their dreams sailed into the sunset. The father, outraged at what he felt was the unjust, unfair hand that he had been dealt, went down to the pier to stare as the ship set out. Furious at God, frustrated with his son, he cried and he cursed. He stomped home in a foul mood. He stayed that way too. 
Then only a few days after the vessel had left port, he got word that on April the 15th, the very ship which was to have brought them to a new life had been sunk. The Titanic had gone down. As it disappeared, it had taken with it the lives of over 1,500 passengers. Hearing that news, Mr. Clark's attitude was instantly transformed. Excitedly, enthusiastically, eagerly, he hugged his son. Plainly, powerfully, and prayerfully, he thanked his God. Their lives had been spared. Their tragedy had been turned into a triumph. He certainly couldn't have known that. All of God's no's are not as dramatic as that, and we won't understand the reason for all of God's no's as soon as the Clark family understood that reason. But the principle and the lesson is the same. Well, how did David react as we close? Notice there in verse number 17, David, David answers there. In verse number 25, I should say, Yeah, verse number 18, I'm sorry. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant for your word's sake and according to your own heart you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. David, he recognized his own weakness that he was nobody. And he he also recognized God's wisdom that God knew who he was and that God had a plan. And then lastly, he kind of goes back over all the things that God has done in verse 22. He says, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt the nations and their gods for you have made your people Israel your very own people forever and you Lord have become their God and now notice how David finally in verse 25 he accepts God's plan he says now O Lord God the word which you have spoken concerning your servant And concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now therefore let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. You know, I love that verse 28. You've heard me say before that quoting the old theologian when asked uh, as he neared the end of his life, what is the greatest lesson in all your years of study of Scripture and of and of the Bible, what is the greatest lesson just summarized in, in one sentence that you can share with us before you leave this earth? He said, the greatest lesson without doubt that I've learned in all my study of Scripture is that God is God and I am not. 
God is God, and I am not. And there David says to the Lord in verse number 28, And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. David accepted God's no. What do we do when God says no? Well, we can do like the Clark, Mr. Clark did, and we can fuss and fume and, and curse and swear and beat our head against the wall and talk about how unfair God is and how terrible things are and why doesn't God treat me like He treats everybody else. And that's human nature. And I, I tell you, I, I felt that way before. I think if all of us are honest that, that we would agree, most of us, if we've lived any length of time, that we've probably had a time in our life where we felt that God was unfair. God was unjust. That God wasn't running things as He should. Or we can do as David did when God said no. We can trust God by faith. And we can take what God has promised. Remember, the Bible tells us that all things over in Romans 8, 27, it says, He that searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And also in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. There are always two choices. You know, I think when we're faced with a tragedy, we're faced with a great disappointment in life, there are basically two choices we can make. There's what I call the black door, and we are often tempted to go inside the black door, and I've been in there before, and maybe some of you have, but in the black door, inside that door, is a place of bitterness, a place of anger, a place of resentment, and once you enter that door, you become angry, first of all, at God. You become angry at other people. You blame God. You blame other people. And you really just want to withdraw from God and from everybody else. I, I don't want to be around anybody. I don't want to, sure don't want to go to church. I don't want to do anything. I'm just going to do nothing, basically. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's the black door. And then there's the white door. And inside that door is where you say, you know what? I don't understand. I'm hurt. I'm confused. I am angry. But, I, but I'm going to take all of these things and I'm going to offer them up to God. You, did you know you can offer your anger up to God? You can offer your bitterness up to God? You can offer your doubts up to God? You can offer all the painful things that come against us. As a matter of fact, I would say that's the only way to truly overcome those, those thoughts and those emotions is to offer them to God. As, as one old song says, take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Because my friend, these thoughts of anger and bitterness and, and, and blame, they're too heavy to carry. They're too heavy to carry. No person can carry them. If you try to carry them, they will destroy you. You can't carry them. You've got to give them to someone who can. And that's what we do. We come to God and we say, Lord, I don't understand. And I, but, but I come and I give it to you. And I ask you to help me. Help me to walk with you by faith. Not to see with my eyes and not to see in this life only. But know that this life is but a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. But there's coming an eternal kingdom. 
That is forever and ever and ever. And when we get to that place, this place will seem but as, but as a dream, as a vapor that was here. Help me to see things with spiritual eyes and with eternal eyes. Not to become angry, not to become bitter. I'll give you this one last poem and we'll close. It says, one by one, the poem's called Treasures. It's an old poem, but I think it has a great meaning. Treasures. One by one, he took them from me, all the things I valued most. Until I was empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost. As I walked earth highways grieving in my rags and poverty, till I heard his voice inviting, lift your empty hands to me. So I held my hands toward heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till they could contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull that God could not pour out his riches into hands already full. You say, I, all I have is empty hands. You know, those are the hands God can use best. Lift those empty hands. You say, I've got an empty heart. That's the heart God can use best. Open that empty heart to Him. Let Him fill it with His love and His grace. You know, the old hymns and the new hymns that we sing, they're not just words. They, they carry an eternal truth. The one we sang a couple of times this morning, what a friend we have in Jesus all our griefs and sins to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. As our musicians come and give us a hymn of invitation, you hear this morning, maybe God has said no to you about something, maybe about many things. And within your heart, you carry a bitterness and an anger because God has said no. Let me beg you and encourage you. Don't tote that bitterness, that anger around. Go to God with that anger. Trust Him. You know what the devil wants to do more than anything else is to drive a wedge between you and God. The one who loves you the most. The one who can help you the most. And he often does it with bitterness and with doubt and with anger. And say, now God, if that's how you're going to be, then you know, I'm, I'm going to get back at you. And I, you, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not serving. I'm not praying. I'm not reading. I'm not serving you anymore. Don't let the devil win that fight. God has said no to you. Take those empty hands that should contain what you have asked for, but yet they don't. You lift them to God and let God pour out His grace and His love and His mercy upon you. You hear you don't know Jesus as Lord. You've never committed your life to Him. You need to make a public profession of faith. I just invite you to come as we stand and sing. Hymn number 371. Hymn number 371. You just obey the Lord as we stand.